Hello again, this is Josh Carr with The Real Angle, and today I'm speaking with Ashley Simpson at Grovesner. Ashley, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to see you, my friend. Good to see you too. Glad we could uh, get on the line today. So yeah, so let's start with the basics. So you're at, you're at, first off, how do you pronounce the company? Is it Grovesner? <laughs> is it Grovesner? I hear it called a lot of different things over the years. It's, it's Grovesner. The S is solid. It's a... It's it's obviously a British firm, but not obviously with a French name. But it's it, the S is silent. <laughs> I love it. British firm with French name. All good. All <laughs> good stuff. So yeah. So let's start with the basics here. Uh, what what do you? What's your title? What do you, what do you do? What do you do at Grosner? Well, the title just means that when things go wrong, they know who to blame. So I'll, I'll start with that. That's usually sure. the first the first part. So I, I, I'm Ashley Simpson, and I had. Uh, Grovner's structured development finance program, providing capital to uh, third-party developers in Canada and the U.S. And I've been back here now um, 17 months, I believe it's been so far. Okay. And where are you physically based? You Physically, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm literally across from the White House. Uh, Got you know, just over my, over my left shoulder is where the White House is. That sounds much more exciting than it probably is. But uh... <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Now you mentioned Canadian operations. I mean, you guys are. Would you say right now the well? So let's let's talk a little bit about stuff. So you're there 17 months. Where were you before? Kind of how did you end up where you are now? Sure. So I, I, prior to returning to Grosvenor, I was at uh, MetLife Investment Management. Okay. For about 16 years. Moved around a bit from Washington to New York to San Francisco and back to uh, New York, New Jersey. And I had a suite of experiences there from, you know, doing capital raising to uh, bringing in uh, new clients to going back and doing uh, more acquisitions, joint ventures, things that I enjoy. But after a while, I figured there's someone better to do you know, more transactions than I've done and pass the baton on to someone else. Sure, sure. And and you came to where you are now. Now, let, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about what the investment platform is. So you mentioned you're partnering with operators, with developers, correct? I mean, you're- Yes. Not, okay. So you, yes. So are you, if you were to describe what you guys do, would you say that you're a co-GP or an LP? How would you describe what that relationship looks like? Sure, it's a great question. And maybe I'll take a half step back just to set the table. Uh, so Grovner uh, Property America basically operates in Canada and the US. And we have three lines of businesses. Um, our line, well, our first line of business is our development business that's you know focused on built to core. And that's all balance sheet. And in some cases, if not most cases, we are acting as a GP uh, with some LP capital. And our investment uh, business that's focused on core and value-add investments. And that's also the majority of our balance sheet and in some cases with uh, third-party investors. And the third business is the business that I run, Structured Development Finance, which is focused on uh, more merchant build for residential ground-up development in Canada and the U.S. So that's where the, the distinction between what I do and what the other lines of businesses uh, do. But as a whole, we make up a Grover Property America. 
Okay. Okay. So, so a lot of different, different products, if you will. Um, so, and markets, I know you mentioned us, Canada. Um, I mean, right now, are there any markets? I mean, when you think about the markets you're in, uh, is there a size of market you're looking at? Are you trying to be in the bigger cities? What's the kind of, where's the focus, if you will, or is it just simply you're going where the deal finds you, so to speak? Sure. So from, from two areas, I'll, I'll answer that question, uh, geographic and then uh, market dynamics. Mm -hmm. So from a geographic perspective, we are coastal uh, for our business. And if we run from Vancouver to, to Toronto, down the East Coast, Boston, D.C., Metro, and then off to Denver, uh, Northern Southern California, uh, Seattle, those are the markets that we we focus on from a from a uh, perspective, from a geographic perspective. Okay. And then from a fundamental perspective, there are things that we look at that give us diversity in terms of economies. Mm -hmm. So different different geogra geographic areas have different uh, economies. And then the other part is we're anchored in because we're focused on residential. Uh, we're anchored in what are the fundamental drivers for. Uh, for sale homes and also rentals. And the, the obvious headline is it costs more to own a home or twice as much to own a home on a monthly basis as it does on average to rent. So there is more demand, and one would argue with that perspective, there's more demand for rentals. So we, we focus in areas where there is demand for both, uh, but we understand that there may be more demand for rental than there is uh, for, for sale product. Right, and, and then, that changes with the cycle. I mean, and that changes with the cycle. Yeah, and one of the things that we try to do, or we're also just to dial a little further into it, is uh, we look at the long run historical average for uh, population and income growth in those markets. And with our research team, we've been able to identify some markets within those geographic areas where we feel that the next five years will perform in those two areas will outperform the long run average. So in tying it all together, not only from a geographic perspective, uh, but we're also tying it to tying it with some of the fundamentals that we see that could be accelerants to our success on a go forward basis. Right. Trying to be data driven, finding specific yes. markets that that ring your bills. I'm a bit of a data nerd sometimes. No, and, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, because I, I deal a lot with local operators who basically say, well, you know, I know this market really well, so I can make money here regardless of where we are because I know the market. And while I respect that, it's still always given the option better to be in a good market than a bad market. <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, given the option. Now, the Canadian angle is interesting to me because, you know, I deal with a lot of American firms who, frankly, just don't even think of Canada like they don't like Canada doesn't exist for a lot of American developers mindset wise, uh, whereas I think going the other direction, you know, Canada can't really ignore us just because the U.S. is huge. I mean, it's yes. hard to ignore the U.S. So the Canadian focus, is that because the mothership, the parent company, if you will, is coming from the U.K.? Like, did you did the entity start in Canada? Like, why is the Canadian? Do you think the Canadian focus is linked to in some capacity? The fact that the parent entity is a UK entity, I guess, is one of them. There is a direct link there. Yes, okay. and then we started in uh, in Vancouver uh, some over seventy five years ago, I believe. It, I believe the 
if I, if I remember my 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 growing history correctly. Sure. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's a test at the end. That's but there is, there is definitely a link to the mothership in London. And we migrated, I believe we migrated south into the U.S. starting in California. We had at one point in the, uh, in the 80s, we had at one point investments in Hawaii. I wasn't in real estate at the time. <laughs> or even sure, thought sure. about it at the time. But I would have loved to work in Hawaii. And we migrated east. And the building I sit in today... I believe one of our first investments in Washington D.C., and that's been some maybe forty years ago. Sure, if, sure. If you know. Yeah, no, I've I've never had to do a site visit on Hawaii, but if I were asked, I would say yes. I I I, 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 ra I raise my hand with you. <laughs> Unfortunately, my site visits have always been to not to beat up in any cities to far less glamorous locations like Cleveland. <laughs> I agree. No one, no one's ever, you know, not to knock on Cleveland, but you know, it's. Uh, it's not Hawaii. So um, none, nonetheless. So timeline wise, when you're partnering with developers, when you're working with developers, um, I mean, is the goal build it and just get out and then it gets sold? Are you looking to do stuff where you guys stay in long term and then you're just holding it for portfolio? What's the what's the mindset, if you will? Yeah, the mindset is the former. We, we are uh, our capital is high octane capital. So we are in and out. And that that uh, recap event can either be you know a refinancing or a sale of the asset, and we redeploy that capital, reinvest that capital, depending on you know, the appetite of our investors. So the focus has always been for this particular business uh, to uh, invest and then exit. For other lines of businesses, those are assets that we hold for the long term and provide us cash flow in the long term. Sure. Now I do want to ask because we've we've talked a little bit about your 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 partners, if you will, or operating partners. Um, how, so you decide you want to be in a market. You know, you love Nashville. You like a neighborhood in Nashville. It doesn't matter what the city is, right? You pick a city, you pick the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, how how do you find them? How do they find you? Because it's great to decide that this is the up and coming neighborhood in you know Nashville, Boston, what have you. What's that look like? Great question. In terms of identifying uh, sponsors we want to work with. Yeah, how, how do you find sponsors? Yeah. How do sponsors find you? It's a big world, right? So it is a big world. Look, I think one of the things that, so it's multi-pronged. Uh, we certainly use the traditional broker relationships. Uh, and then we also, at times, follow relationships that we've had with other sponsors. And that's been a great, I would say, a great conveyor belt, if you will, of bringing deals to us and, and success. Sure. And then we also, you know, do the old school, getting into a market, meeting people, whether it's you know, through ULI or other um, other uh, avenues, we get into the market and, and really try to understand who the players are. And we do cold call people. And so there is, there is, a, there is a layering of um, accessing the market via those channels that helps us, if you will, promote the brand and carry the flag. And in many cases, people are like, I didn't know Grosvenor did that. I didn't know Grosvenor had that kind of capital. And that's fair. We're, we're not um, like the company I, I used to work at, MetLife, or other larger institutional groups. But we have the same capacity in terms of you know, our underwriting, you know, underwriting prowess. We look at deals similarly. And we also have access to some of the same developers that 
the large firms, large institutional firms have access to. No, and name brand, you know, it's funny with name brand, um, you know, you mentioned MetLife, your prior employer, you know, they have a huge retail operation, obviously. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are not in the industry who just know MetLife because, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, exactly. yeah, I mean, so, I mean, many years ago, not to get into my life because we're talking about you, but many years ago, I worked uh, doing work for Chase Manhattan Bank before they merged with J.P. Morgan. And, you know, every consumer in New York City knew Chase Manhattan Bank because they were on every corner. Of and, course. And then when they merged J.P. Morgan, there was a whole conversation about, well, that's great, but what name do we put on the door? Because the average American, you know, J.P. Morgan's institutional. They they don't do retail banking. That's not their yeah. uh, not their business. So, no, it's it, it's interesting. Yeah. No, you guys are. I mean, from my perspective, as someone in the industry, you guys are huge, but no one knows who you are. Uh, because <laughs> I again, I like that at times. Yeah, no, and, and that's no knock on you. I mean, look, you're, you're the the parent entity is UK based, you know. So, yes. You know, there's that aspect, and you don't have a retail presence because you're not doing retail banking. You're not writing life insurance policies, but you know that doesn't mean you're not a big institutional player. You know, it's it's uh, and your point about reaching and finding developers. Yeah, it's it's it, that's a challenge, I imagine, because, I mean, you know, just because someone built a good project doesn't mean there's someone you want to partner with. Sometimes sometimes guys just get lucky and they do one project and make a bunch of money. Right. They're actually good operating partners. Um, Agreed. Agreed. You know, with, and look, we you know, we target established middle market developers all the way up to institutional quality developers with expertise across markets and also countries. We, you know, we have you know, repeat business from about 60% of the sponsors we've worked with, which is a fairly high That's number, uh, high ratio. And we like that because they've delivered for us through cycles, through, through up and down cycles. And I think that is a, that's something we hang our hat on is, is having the ability to choose the right sponsor to do to, to finance their individual investments. I imagine it also just from an ease of repeat business. I mean, once you've negotiated the legal documents, once you know who the players are, once you yes. know how their reporting system works, all that jazz. And once they've learned how you want to see data, I mean, cause I mean, I've raised equity and I mean, different investors want to see information different ways. And you, that's a process too. Just learning like, how do you want to see that info? Um, I think that's underestimated when you know, uh, you know middle market developers are talking to institutional groups. That piece is, I think, is underestimated uh, by some developers in that there is a level of expectation or quality of work that's required because right. everyone, as I tell everyone, everyone has a boss. Every, no matter who you are, they may not be at the table. No, we all answer to somebody. Up. That's life. Yeah, there's somebody in the back that can veto whatever you may do. And you want to, if you're the person at the table, you want to have the person that's not at the table well-informed around what, um, what you're doing. And part of that is if I'm, if I'm doing diligence on you as an investor, a developer, I need to understand what's happening uh, with the quality of work from not only from the development of the project, but also from financial reporting side so that people behind me can go, okay, yeah, we, we, we see that they can deliver not only in the 
re, you know, the actual development, but also on um, the quality of you know, the softer stuff, the reporting and the accuracy of the reporting. Sure. It's not enough to just simply be we made money. It's to giving transparency and feedback so that you can give feedback to your people and so that the whole system runs. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Know, no, and that's a that's a challenge. It's not enough to just do good work. You have to show people that you did good work. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, no uh, you know, it, it's funny. My uh, And now I put my academic hat on because I've been an adjunct professor for years. But one of the things you always say as an instructor to people when they're you know, answering a test is, you know, show your work, right? And I'd be right. great. You got the answer of five. Well, how did you, how did you get, get to it? five? You know, like, because <laughs> if you just now put down five, I, I start to think maybe you read it off the guy's paper next to you. Maybe, yeah. maybe you just guessed. I mean, yeah. I don't know how you got five, you know, yeah. show your work. Yeah, no, it's uh, these truisms come back again and again. It's, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the thing about, you know, football, it's blocking and tackling. It often is just the basics. It, it comes back to just doing it well. It's, it's just uh, the basics. It yeah. really is. And I think the, the, the environment that we're in today mm-hmm. is really getting back to the basics. Yeah. There, were, there was, a, there, there was a, a long period where the capital markets saved a lot of, you know, bad decisions that people may have made. Mm-hmm. And those decisions are highlighted today given the current market we're in and this is the fundamental piece that you're talking about yeah i mean it's funny because you talk about housing because i know that's kind of what you're focused on but even things just like housing size like okay you know for years units have been getting bigger and bigger while household sizes have been getting smaller and smaller you know and if the goal of housing is to provide shelter you start to ask basic questions like okay what do people actually need in terms of housing? Like, you know, like I get it, everyone wants a bigger house, but when push comes to shove and they have to start cutting corners, like what do you what do you at what are you willing to pay for and what was just a nice thing that if the developer gave it to you for free you'd take? You know? Yeah. And when everything was going up, no one had to ask those questions. I mean I'm you mentioned ULI, you know, earlier, Midland Institute, I remember had great data on the way that housing was getting bigger and household sizes were getting smaller. I mean, it just, certain point, it just gets silly. So structurally, I mean, and I just, I wanted to hit back on something you mentioned earlier. So you guys are multinational. Um, Obviously your U.S. operation has been up for decades now. Um, Are you guys, you guys are effectively independent, right? I mean, you're just sort of running as your own thing or are you really... What, what's that? I always find it interesting talking to people multinationals because you get into conversations yeah. about structure. Like, to what extent are you kind of doing your own thing? I sure. Guess a way of putting it. Well, look, we are our own operating company with our own executive team and board. Uh, we do, however, adhere to what's called the compact. And the compact is defined by Group Grobner Group out of London. And it governs many things about how we operate as a company. Uh, we still have, I would say, jurisdiction of how we invest, where we invest, yeah, our capital, committee. and making making local decisions around uh, those uh, those investments. So that still remains within the purview of the executive team and, and the senior leadership. So the best way I think is is is. To describe it is that you know we have we have a long enough long enough uh, um, 
runway to do as much as we need to to make our business successful over time and sustain it as well. Well put. While still part of a broader corporate culture. But broad, yes, part of a broader broader. broader but you're not necessarily having tea at three o'clock. Um, uh, well, there are some things that we. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I you are. Say we, yeah, I wouldn't say we have tea, but we do. We do recognize uh, our Canadian brethren, our Canadian colleagues. Uh, December twenty sixth coming up here as Boxing Day, and sure, they will be off. And you know, I I kind of know what Boxing Day is because I'm also an immigrant from a former British colony, but. Everyone has a different definition of what Boxing Day is, but it's still a holiday. But it's and a holiday. Where is an holiday. American, as an as a U.S. born citizen, uh, who's not an immigrant, this this was not in my language until I started working. That was the, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm like, what is what is boxing? Did you hit each other? It's it's not a it's not a word we use. Yeah, uh, the the definition runs pretty wide, if right. you will. It's right. supposed to be you know where one one definition is. Uh, where uh, you may re-gift re things that you received to you know, folks that didn't have, uh, didn't receive anything anything for Christmas. Sure. To, to the less know, fortunate, give things you, to the less You fortunate. fill in the blank on whatever definition you want. I, I really don't know if there is a, I, I do not know if there is a true definition sure. of what sure. Boxing Day is, and it may just be all, yeah, urban legend. In this yeah, I mean, as an American, it always just felt to me like, hey, it's the day after Christmas. Mom and dad have been up all night wrapping presents. Um, they're tired. <laughs> they don't want to go to work. That's they don't want to go to work. Because yeah. I don't know about you, but I've always taken December 26th off either way because I was up with my wife wrapping presents at one in the morning. Right. And, you know, right. tired. <laughs> that's, just, that's, just, that's just having kids. So, um, so let's talk about the, the one question I always like to ask is the secret sauce. By that, I mean, you work on a lot of different deals. What deal works for your entity that doesn't work for another entity? Like, what's a deal that you guys are like, this rings our bell, whereas one of your competitors would just take a pass? That's a great question. It's the, I don't know that there is a, Maybe I'll frame it another way in terms of what really works for us. Uh, what really works for us is predicated on some of the things that I mentioned early on in terms of the fundamentals in the market. Uh, and the other piece that I think works well for us is we really focus on um, creating space and place with the developments that we capitalize. And so we look for that and that could be in an urban setting, or you know, in, in some cases, and also a suburban setting. Okay. Uh, the other part of it is we're really focused on, you know, how the development impacts the environment, and that's been something we've probably amplified more today than maybe in the past. So that's, I wouldn't say a lot of people are not doing it, but it's certainly coming into vogue that that is happening. That that focus is happening today. And I think the last thing I'll mention is, you know, early on I mentioned about doing business, repeat business with a subset of uh, developers. Right. We also think that adds that adds credibility to our to how we execute this business across the U.S. and Canada. Is that we've partnered or we've picked sponsors that have a strong reputation and have delivered for us. So that's how we 
executed each of our markets, and even in new markets where we may not have we may not have boots on the ground. Uh, for example, we don't have boots on the ground in in uh, Vancouver. Excuse me, in Seattle, but we've executed business in in, uh, in Seattle. We've had we don't have boots on the ground in Boston, but we're certainly in Boston and would execute there uh, with potentially one of our existing partners or someone that you know, we may have done business elsewhere in our platform. Right. So I would say those are the handful of things that works work well for us. No, and, and and yeah, Seattle's not that far from Vancouver, and you know Boston's not that far from New York and DC. All things being equal, no, it's yeah, uh, yeah no, it's it's funny. I, I went to college in the Northwest, and Portland, Seattle, Vancouver are really more like one collective entity, in the same way that's kind of like DC, New York, Boston are like, you know, it's an it's an integrated zone, if you will. Yes, and yes. If, if you can do one city, you can kind of float into the other. And, and that sort of thing. That's interesting. So, so yeah, so as far as new markets, you know, one question I always like to ask is, you know, for good or bad, nothing ever works out as expected because that's life. That's um, life, yeah. You know, any any recent surprises that you feel like sharing, good or bad, you know, I always like to ask that. You know, deals that worked out. Yeah, that's, that, a, you know. that's a great question. I, I think, you know, in my 17 months here, as the Fed kept raising rates, there was, you know, my, my reaction was, um, we're not doing any development for on-for-sale projects at all. Sure. We're just not rates doing it. Crazy. Yep. crazy to do that. Yep. And before the, uh, by the beginning of the year, we started to see... The manifestation of you know, homeowners that had the sub three interest rates sort of pulling back, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the, there was demand for housing in the, in the for sale market, and that had manifested itself in the public home builders buying up, you know, needing lots, needing you know lots that were fully developed so that it can go vertical, and you started to see started to see new housing starts kick up and demand for new housing kick up. And I was scratching my head going, wait a minute, rates are moved, uh, mortgage rates have also moved, but there's also demand for housing. And the two didn't seem to make sense. I, I didn't understand it either. I don't know where all these people are getting money from. Like right. <laughs> normally you think if rates go from three to seven, that yeah. you know the guy who had a million dollar house would say, yes. well, now I can only afford a half a million dollar house because math. You know, right. and therefore demand should drop. And I figured right. that the only houses that would come to market would be for sales, you know, divorce, death, that sort of thing. Right. And, but yet we're building new units. We're building new housing. You know, maybe it's constrained because the supply chains are still kind of a mess. But right. yeah, no, I, it's 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 the darndest thing. I, I don't <laughs> I don't know where all these people are getting money from. I don't understand it because. All right. So you know, I was wrong about that. And yeah. you know, we started looking at uh, you know, developments uh, in the U.S. and Canada around uh, for sale. So we've, we've pivoted. So that, I would say that's, that was a learning lesson for me. And again, it didn't follow logic that you would have high interest rates and then also demand for it. Because we, we lived through so 12 years of low, a low interest rate environment. Right. Much longer than one would expect, and yeah. with rates moving so quickly, it almost seemed 
natural. It seemed natural that people would stop buying, period, and focus more on renting. Yeah, no, it, it almost, I mean, I hate to say, I mean, not to beat up on economic forecasters, but, you know, at a certain point, <laughs> I think in your career, you just realize that prediction is almost pointless. Like, just, you know, That's true. <laughs> if you find a deal and the numbers work, you should just do it, because the reality is no one really knows, and so... Yeah shrug you know like what What do you do now so as long as we talked about interest rates so let's talk about sort of the plans for so you know pulling back for a moment you know next 12 months 24 months you know five years kind of what's the what's the strategic vision here what, what, what direction do you think you guys are going to be going big picture as rates big picture a great question so big picture i think the the focus will remain on housing and the focus will remain on uh, adding to the housing stock uh, in a way that we think benefits that particular market. And the big piece that the attribution between for sale and rental will, will sort of depend on the cycle we're in. But I think there is still uh, a bias toward rental today, just given when you look at what's happened with interest rates, there has been a throttling back of you know, new housing development on the multifamily side. Right. So you have demand increasing because of affordability, you know, the affordability index uh, is much wider, if you will. And then you also have, um, I'm sorry, you have, you know, affordability being, you know, buying a home is pretty high. And then you also have the retard or the throttling back of housing starts. So there is this gap there that needs to be filled there is, I think, a moment in time where there's an opportunity to start building again on the on the multifamily side. And I think that should help alleviate some of the pressure that we're seeing where you know, rate, you know, house, housing, where rents are moving and people are still sort of trying to figure out how they're going to take that monthly rent. Um, right. I would say that's probably a five-year cycle sure. on, on the most conservative end. It's a five-year cycle. I mean, I guess maybe more aggressive and it's sort of a, we can fill it in five years, but it certainly, I think, could last through a, through a five-year period to get. Yeah, no, and I think it also gets interesting when you think about sort of long-term trends in the United States of, you know, people putting off uh, household formation for longer periods of time, you know, people getting married or settling down later and later in life, you know? Yeah. So I think that's also... I mean, for whatever my opinion is worth, um, you know, when you talk about long-term demand for, for rental product, you know, there's a real lack of rental product in the United States. I mean, rental product in the U.S. traditionally has been, you know, a low-income it's been a low-income product. It yes. has not been. It's not been people who have money who could buy a house. And it seems like the American culture is changing to say, hey, I could buy a house, but for family reasons, for personal reasons, I, I don't want to. You know, right. Um, so, and and that's manifesting itself in terms of how apartments are designed. Yeah. So you're starting to see. So if you think of the cohort, the the age cohort that is renting today and potentially rent, you know, going forward, that cohort has expanded to maybe people in their forties. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. And as those individuals, you know, anywhere between 30 and 40, as they start to be part of new or existing household formation and those demand chain, those demands for use of their home changes, 
you're starting to see slightly bigger homes than you may have seen in the past. So for example, if you're looking at a you know, 700,000, 7,000, excuse me, 700 square foot apartment, you may be at 800 square feet or 900 square feet on sure. average because people want to have more efficient kitchens, right. uh, a place where they can work outside of their casual space where they may dine or entertain, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, better, better design, uh, bedrooms and vanities, things of that nature, that cohort is driving. So I think that if housing continues to be out of reach for many, it will continue to influence how we design apartments for that particular cohort. Right. And that particular cohort, at least right now, is starting to demand more and more space for them to live in and also work in, given we're also a remote environment. Yeah, the, a remote environment that, the that, work that from home thing is interesting. Yeah, the work from home thing is interesting because it's not just space, it's quality of space, right? It's sound, yes. it's solid doors, it's high speed internet, it's it's having a place that's more than just a room that th- we throw the treadmill in. Like it's an actual, right. it's a proper office, you know? Yes. And I know, I don't know about your situation personally, but I know when I had to work from home for a period of time, we had a room in my house that technically was the home office, but it wasn't really ever set up as a home office. It right. was simply, we had a computer in there on a desk, but I, you know, prior <laughs> to prior to the work from home thing, it was like, well, I'll pay some bills or I'll do some household family stuff, you know? It, it was not, not intense not, work. Right. I mean, and then all of a sudden you're saying, wait a moment, I need to, you know, I need to get a second monitor. I need a bigger desk. I need a proper office chair. It needs to be an office for real. Right. Um, which is all doable, but, you know, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very interesting. And, you know, when I talk to people in the office space industry, um, you know, they're, they're, they're having challenges because exactly what's driving your business is destroying theirs. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, I hate to say it. I don't mean to beat up on the office building people, but wow, I, I don't yeah, know the, a lot of that, that in space. That's going to take, uh, that's going to take some time to unwind. Oh, yeah. And no one has a silver bullet on how to deal with office inventory uh-huh. or excess office inventory. And I know that there are some solutions out there people are trying. Sure. Conversions is one example. Yeah, uh, teardowns, teardowns is another example. Shocking amount of space, though. It's a shocking yes. amount of space. I mean, it's it, it's just, and you know, I can think of, I can think of, you know, cities that, you know, depopulated like Cleveland, Detroit, what have you, that have office buildings that are now 40, 50 years old, and they never found a use for them, because when the population dropped, yeah, that was it. So, right. yeah, I mean, conversions in a market like New York City that I can understand, because we still have a heck of a lot of people here, mm-hmm. um, but markets, some other cities. There is no good alternative use, you know. Um, right. Housing is relatively inexpensive in cities like Cleveland and Detroit and Baltimore. You don't need to convert those buildings. You could just buy a house for less money. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you do in some of those cities. I just yeah. Don't. Um, and no one really does. But uh, but nonetheless, um, well, this has been good. It's been good to talk about the the growth and for rental product and. Uh, and what you guys are doing. And I think your platform is genuinely interesting. It, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, 
it's an interesting platform and it's one you guys have been dedicated to, which I also think is really interesting because it seems to me in our industry, a lot of companies sort of come in and out of a plan of a, a strategy as opposed yes. to what you guys have done, which has really built a legitimate business around the strategy and, and kept at it for decades, which is pretty amazing. It's a core value of Grosvenor. It is a core value, very sticky, sticky organization in terms of where we invest, how we invest, how we treat people, how we treat our stakeholders, both internal and external. It is, it is a core value of ours. Not just chasing a fad or the latest product. No, no. that's one thing we don't do is chase, chase fads. That's refreshing. I don't know. It's, 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 like it's, it's nice to hear. You know? It's nice to hear. It's the basics sometimes. You know, it's it basics, really yeah. it really does come back to the basics. Well, beautiful. Basics, well, Ashley, thanks again for joining me. Glad we could talk yep. about this. And Absolutely, uh, Josh. My pleasure. If there's anything else I can do for you with you, please let me know. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. And it, I know I nerd out a little bit sometimes, but uh, that's a good thing. <laughs> Well, thank, thanks again. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thanks.